in the past we had been more reluctant to do because we were holding fast and tight to old ways we were doing it where we knew of the ROIs and we knew that we could get results. And the longer you hold on to old ways, the less you test and explore and find new things, you know, and you just get behind, right? So it's been this massive like leap of faith. I'm super excited about this guest, Katie Decker. She's the global president of essential health and sustainability at Johnson & Johnson. She's been there over 18 years and she opened the book for us. I mean, what an amazing leader. She's pushing some major initiatives that take a ton of courage in a really big organization that could be viewed as sometimes hard to move. And I'll admit it, when I think of Johnson & Johnson, I think of stodgy. I don't think of courage. And when I when we talked to Katie, it was the opposite. She is very cool, very approachable. You know, if you were like, been at this 100,000 person company for 19 years, you would be like, oh, set in their ways. She is the exact opposite. Yeah, she's really pushing them. And uh, we talk a lot about that, but we also talk about values. And J&J has had this credo for um, well over 100 years since they've been in business. And we go into that a little bit. She shares with us some of the things that they're doing where, you know, she has to lead and put herself out on a limb and, and what that looks like. And I just got a lot of value out of this one. Well, I really appreciated her talking about imposter syndrome too, because it's a new role for her. And then the fact that she is spearheading movement in their diversity, equity, inclusion program, but she knows she can't do it alone and nor is she trying to do it alone. I thought we covered a ton of ground in this episode. It's a great listen. We are here with Katie Decker, who is currently, let me make sure this is right, Katie, currently the president of Global Essential Health, correct, at Johnson & Johnson? That is correct. So what exactly does that mean? Uh, good question. I know it's not very self-explanatory. So um, the global president of Essential Health for Johnson & Johnson Consumer Health, that role comprises a bunch of the business units that... Um, have some of the biggest brands that consumers know and love from Johnson and Johnson, whether it's our baby care products, you know, you probably know Johnson's baby or Vino baby, our oral care range, which is Listerine, um, wound care, Band-Aid, Neosporin are some of the brands there and a women's health business outside of North America, which has brands like stay free, carefree, um, OB tampons. These are all brands that um, a lot of them invented the categories in which they compete today. Okay, so, so so like baby care, oral care, feminine care, wound care. Did I miss any cares? No, nope, just we care. That's. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Do you have like a favorite child? Oh, you can't have a favorite. It's like having a favorite child. I, I love each one of them for different reasons. You know, I, I I'm always will be partial to Listerine, even though I love my all my children the same because of what, what I think just a wonderful product Listerine is and all the things that we know that it can do for your health that we've proven time and time again. Um, that one is a, is a brand where I still feel like there's so much untapped opportunity. Um, but I, I love all my children. Wait, first of all, let me just say, I appreciate the, you know, J and J you could have given us the political and, you, but you, you do have a favorite Listerine's your number one. <laughs> and now I love them all. I'm telling you Listerine, okay, okay. Yeah. Listerine and all of them. So you, you've been there 19 years, correct? Yes. 
And I've always found this fascinating. I mean, I, I worked in advertising, Berman's obviously worked in advertising and, and you get to work on a bunch of different brands, but when you work in a portfolio, how do you manage like the distribution, especially if you do have a favorite like Listerine? How do you how do you manage that distribution of your favorite, time? <laughs> time distribution? Oh, well, I just like you know like how, how do you keep track and manage all of these brands that have you know global presence? Is it something that you learned over time at J and J? Is it something that you had to struggle with? I, I mean, is it? It can't be easy to do. Uh, that. Thank you for that question. Um, I would say that it is something that you learn over time. Um, the best analogy that I can, well, first of all, I have a great team, right? I have a, a really amazing team that helps across all of those businesses and that leads those brands on a day-to-day -day basis. That is really the secret is making sure that you have the right team in place. Um, but you're bringing up a good point that when you have multiple different things in your scope, you have to figure out ways that you can manage that complexity, like mentally. My husband asked me this question and the analogy I give him is, you know, when you're in school, it's not like you're only taking one class, right? You're taking multiple classes all at the same time and you're not getting confused between math and science and, you know, gym, you're keeping them all in their separate buckets. And I think as, as you get more senior and you have a wider scope of responsibilities, you know, there's this, this tension of compartmentalization and trying to keep everything straight across, but then also the ability to see across and realize, recognize themes and patterns. So you don't have to have experienced everything over and over again. You can see the patterns and the relationships across the different businesses. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I found that in my career too, where you, you can take insights from maybe different verticals, different industries, different brands and apply them and test them in different areas. Is there, is there anything that you have taken maybe from one brand in the portfolio that you've tried somewhere that was maybe a little bit risky and that, you know, maybe a little uncomfortable in your seat at any point in your career? I think that the most uncomfortable seat I've ever been in is the one that I'm in right now. Um, and let me give you a little bit about why I'm saying that it's the change task that was involved in this current role the creation of essential health at Johnson and Johnson is new. We've only had it for 18 months. The brands aren't new. The way we've organized them are new. And the reason we've done this is we've made a declaration that the places that are going to drive the biggest growth for our business are in our self-care business and in our skin health business. And we have, we are powering those up to win. They're very closely aligned with health and where our mission is and essential health. It's still aligned with our, where our mission is, but they're not the categories where we expect to drive explosive growth. And so what we've done is we've right-sized the investment to make sure that we can maintain our category leadership, but without, um, you know, it, it's not, they're not the businesses that are, are going to be really powered up to drive, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10% growth, right? We're looking around the two to 3% growth. So what is risky about it? is when you peel back resources from the traditional way that you've gone to market and the, and the change task is, what's this new business model that's gonna keep all of these things growing and keep them relevant and successful in the market? And that's why I say, it's probably the scariest seat I've ever been in because it, was, it involved a lot of changing and challenging conventions, you know, and, and pivoting really quickly because it's not like we drained, we slowly peeled back resources over time, we did it overnight. And so like, what are we gonna do 
with all these businesses to make them happen. And so, yes, every day we try stuff on different parts of different businesses and then scale those across. And that has led us to the creation of this new business model that now we've been working in for about a year and we keep like optimizing and, and refining that. But that one, the, the new business model is, is largely based on a digital model. Um, something that I think in the past we had been more reluctant to do because we were holding fast and tight to old ways we were doing it where we knew of the ROIs and we knew that we could get results. And the longer you hold on to old ways, the less you test and explore and find new things, you know, and you just get behind, right? So it's been this massive like leap of faith um, over the last year or so in order to get to drive the change. I mean, it's good. And again, this is why I wanted, like we wanted to have you on today because there's lots of cliches that you could play here, right? Like the company has been around for 130 years and there's only 130,000 people, I think, that work at J&J Worldwide. And it's, you, could, you, could, you could rest on your laurels a little bit. You could, or you'd think you could rest on your laurels on like what's worked in the past. Um, I really appreciate you allowing us to come behind the scenes of what's going on there. And like my first honest question, and like let's, let's get to it here. Like how long did it take you guys to brand the division essential health? Was it like a three-year process? <laughs> Come on, give it to us straight. You know what? I think it was really easy and fast. In fact, um, I didn't even name it. It, it was um, our, our, new, our, our new worldwide chairman, who's not new to J&J, but who, who assumed the role of leading consumer through this transformation. You know, it was part of his initial thinking of, how are we going to organize this thing to resource to win? Because I think we were probably spread in too many different things. I don't think, I know, we were spread in too many different things. And we really needed to prioritize. And we, you know, we're the world's largest healthcare company, Johnson & Johnson. And it only makes sense for our consumer division to be completely focused and committed to consumer health. And so that was, that was his insight and how he wanted to, to drive the company moving forward. And contingent on that was to be able to call those two big pillars of self-care and skin health, the, the focus for growth. And then you were left with this group of brands that are still huge for the company and you can't have them fall off or you'll never be able to, you'll, you won't be able to offset that with the growth from those other groups. And I think he named it and it was right, you know, a very quick thing. And honestly, it was just so natural right from the beginning because it's what those brands are, you know, they're related to health. They're it's, it's actually, those businesses are the ones that give J and J its scale in, in consumers. We, we serve over a billion consumers every day through those brands, you know, cause a lot of them are household names, you know, but you well, find them in, in markets all over the world. They're part of the medicine cabinet. I mean, it's, it's refreshing to hear someone just made a call and that was that. And like, let's move on. Yeah. Let's just, Hallmark of the new time, basically, that we well, were. You know, I mean, again, it's great to hear that you've been there for almost two decades. So I, I do want to hear what you think you want to do for your 20th anniversary, which is coming up next year. Crazy. But the fact that you said that this is the most challenging role you've been in since you've been there. Can, if there was like a pie chart of your time broken down by percentage, you know, that slide, like what, what does it look like at work for you? the pie chart broken down by my time that like that I've spent over 20 years or no, this year, like though I, I oh, imagine geez. Yeah, how um, break it down. Well, first of all, that pie chart would extend onto multiple pages. Um, <laughs> and I think like probably everybody, all of you guys, everyone listening to this 
you've had a mushy life where you've got your personal life and your work life have smashed together unlike ever before, right? And you're finding yourself, if you have kids, part-time teaching them what's going on, you know, in school now that schools are, are coming back into session um, and then trying to make your personal life work with that as well as work all at the same time. But if my pie chart was just going to be my work life, I would say that I'm spending about, I don't know, 40% of my time on this essential health transformation and change. I'm spending uh, 50% of my time on sustainability uh, and, and really getting our consumer health sustainability strategy and really embedded into the way that we operate as a company. And then recently, since the last couple of months, about 10% on racial injustice uh, work. Wow. In an allies program that, that I'm leading. And I, there's other things too, but if, just for the simplicity of the diagram. Do we have you booked for three hours today or how much time do we have with you? <laughs> I, I'm curious, you know, so that's a lot of change. And so, yeah. you know, when you're dealing with a lot of different stakeholders across so many different brands, different backgrounds, I mean, you have to run up to some challenges. I mean, 40% on, on health and, and change and innovation, 50% on sustainability, which maybe not everyone agrees with or they do. And then um, the 10%, which I'm really curious about, maybe you can just give us a little description on, on the 10% first. But like, what does that mean? And, and what challenges are you faced with oh, to get people on board with, with all of this? Because what you're doing is, is proactive and it seems like really innovation at its core. So listen, so much of this is about um, believing in something. Honestly, there is no way that these things would have happened if I didn't feel strongly about them and that I, without a good team, that also believe strongly in the cause, honestly, because there are so many people that you have to bring along on the journey. And some of them are extremely willing and, and want to help. And some of them, it's not that they don't want to help. It's just that it's not maybe their primary priority at the moment or, you know, reticence to change, or that's not how we do it. So there's just a lot of hurdles that you run up against when you're trying to drive massive change. And the way that um, I think, first of all, it takes a ton of energy. Um, mm -hmm. It takes a lot of um, bringing, being inspirational enough to bring people along of why, like making that case for change and making it over and over again, and then getting like other people to ally with you on it and then help you push the boulder a little bit more. And, and these things are not, they don't happen overnight. Like if I think about, the sustainability journey that we've been on for the last, actually, I think I was just on a call earlier today and we realized it's been a year. It, it was one year ago, like next week, that it was kind of like, we've got to take a stand and do something about this to, to this week where we've just made a big public announcement. It doesn't happen overnight. And you have to, you think about these journeys and phases. It's like, all right, the first thing we've got to do is just get a couple key people on board and get a couple of like critical talking points, right? So these things go, they have a life cycle and they go in phases and you have to keep celebrating. Like once you hit a certain point, because that's what gives the team energy and you, you feel like, 
you don't have to get to the end right away. You, you don't eat the elephant like in one setting, right? Like you, you make a plan for the elephant and then you like slowly eat the elephant over time. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, oh, we ate that elephant. It happened. So you asked me about the, the, what was, what did you ask about the race? Well, I was, I, I mean, I was just asking if you could give us some context to what that actually looks yeah. like and what that means. So, um, this one to me has been the most interesting and personally rewarding, uh, thing I've done at work, probably in my entire career. And it came from a place of, I mean, I will be very transparent and say that in some ways I'm ashamed at how little knowledge I had before all of the events of three months ago rolled out. I mean, I grew up in the South. Um, I, in hindsight, experienced extremely racist events right in front of my face, did nothing about them, right? Sat, sat silently and always felt like, well, I'm not a racist, so it's okay. And it's taken a while to understand that that's not really a thing. <laughs> You're either racist or anti-racist and anyone can be anywhere on that spectrum at any point given the situation, right? But um, because of these events, and one of the things that was really spurring me on were my, I have two kids, nine and 11, and they were asking me all these questions that honestly, I just didn't even know, I didn't have the words for it. I didn't even have enough um, knowledge to be able to answer the questions. And while that was happening, at work, we were trying to figure out what are we doing about this? And we first started through our brands that we felt like our brands needed to have a response. And in so doing, there were a number of our black colleagues that were very brave and pulled together their thoughts and feelings and shared them with a leadership team, the leadership team. And it was so impactful because you just realized these people that, I, that came forward that I know and love and have worked with for years and to see them being so direct about the suffering that they have in their daily lives that I have no experience even feeling or knowing because I have privilege, right? I mean, let's face it. It was so shocking and eye-opening that it was like compelling to action. And I think what's different about this, what the work that we've been doing, we, we've created a allies with the black community program. That's the piece of work that we've been leading. But what we would, you know, when I think about diversity and inclusion programs and strategies before all this happened, it felt very much like, okay, well, let's make a plan. Okay, we're gonna do this with recruiting. We're gonna, and you could make a plan. And then you started doing those things in the plan all without really like deep thinking or introspection or education. And if you, if you take that same thought and you apply it to other work situations, let's say you were going to work on, you know, a, a project to smoking cessation, right? You're not just going to go, all right, smoking cessation. We're going to sell some gum. We're gonna, you're going to go, let's go talk to patients. Let's get, let's get the empathy. Let's get all the facts. Let's get all the data. What's the history of all this stuff. You would do this really deep exhaustive search and then from that, you would start figuring out, so what are the challenges? What are the things we need to solve? And I think we always just jump to solutions without actually kind of going through the motions of doing the personal work. And I think that's why it's hard to drive change in this area. And so that's what this allies work has been. It's been this series of like so much education. We've been reading tons of books, getting more educated on, on what the scenario is and bringing our employee population along with us. So at any given time, we, we do these big calls. We'll have like a thousand or 1200 people calling voluntary call in and be part of this journey of you know, like the first, the first issue we tackled was systemic racism. Like what's that mean? What's the history behind it? 
you know, and people were honestly on the edge of their seats and you should, it, it, I was shocked. I was so pleasantly shocked because, you know, you kind of feel like you're putting yourself out. It shouldn't feel that way, but, but you do because it's doing something different in a culture where everyone's really well-meaning, but nothing like this had happened. The second session we did was on white privilege and we didn't skirt around anything. It's like, this is, this is why it happens. This is what you all, everyone that's white here has it. Here's how it manifests itself. We're working on our next one right now, which is about anti-racism, not racist to anti-racism. And what does that mean? And what are, what are things you can do? But this is like an ongoing thing that will probably continue for years because the work will not be done. That was a very long answer to your question. No, I, I think it was great. And what, what's the output? Is it education? Is it awareness? Is it like, are you just getting feedback? It sounds like you're having a great response, but just curious, like, you know, you're, you're gaining all of this knowledge. What do you do with that? Yeah. And I think the way we're looking at it is, is um, diversity and inclusion and creating a sense of belonging in our employee base is going to take a hell of a lot more than an allies program. And so there's many, many ways that are all going to have to work together, you know, in order to accomplish something. But for this specific allies program, the number one objective was really to open people's eyes and cause that self-reflection. Like, cause it's, it's really a part of changing the culture because everybody thinks it's not them, right? That, oh, that's why unconscious bias is unconscious because you don't realize that you're doing it or everybody thinks they're an inclusive leader, you know, and maybe, maybe you are, but like, if you haven't done that deep reflection and be presented with situations where you could think about how you're going to react to that, you haven't done the work really to figure it out. And so that's what the whole point here. And we've spent the first couple of times on at, really on education because we just feel like there's, there's a big knowledge gap, but we're, we're ramping up now into a combination of education plus action. Um, so that we're sort of at that like inflection point now of we want to start driving action within, within the culture and start putting some people accountable for different things. So I have to ask this because, and again, for the, for those who are choosing to just go, straight audio so i'm a i'm a white man you're a white woman and i don't think it's at the same scale but like although i'd love it to be when we launched it's black and white dot us it was same thing three months how do i use my superpower to, to make good and to help people spot their unconscious bias it's a 10 minute experiment that, that you can you can run through and there was a little part of me that felt i don't know if it was like guilty or embarrassed or not only did I not know, like, like I learned as I was going through the process and, and, and listening, but being a white man, I was very worried about, should I be the, am I the right face to bring this forward? How do you, how does that like, when you are bringing this program forward, did, did you feel any of that for you? I, well, at, at the beginning, when we first started talking about doing it, honestly, I, I felt like I didn't, I was afraid because I didn't even know what to talk about or what to say. And you feel like you're going to say the wrong thing. And a lot of times that holds everyone back. Anyone that has that feeling, it holds you back. So it was a little bit of pushing past that discomfort, but the more that you get into it, the more that you realize the power of having a majority person leading a program like this, because this, these programs are for allies with the black community, right? We're trying to inspire action and reflection in the majority population, right? And so it, it's not the job of the people who are oppressed to unoppress themselves, right? It's 
it's the job of the it's the job of the majority to like bond with everybody and help that journey along. So that's why I, I kind of felt like when you're in kind of a position where I think it's about risk, perceived risk. And I, I felt like my perceived risk was low, right? Because I, I don't feel like there's anything that is going to happen negative as a result. And when you feel that way, you realize how much privilege you have and how it is like your responsibility to do something about it. That's, that's kind of how I looked at it. And it's belief system, right? Like at the core, yeah. this is, a, you know, you feel the difference between what's right and what's wrong. Sometimes, yeah. you, sometimes once you get more data, like my, well, the big thing for me, and, and it's almost embarrassing. It took this long, right? But like, I've never once like been worried to go out for a run other than I don't like running. Right. Not that something's going to happen to me. And the more I thought about that scenario, the more guilty I felt that why did it take me this long? First of all, um, you're, you're not, you obviously have a big team behind this. And I think J and J also has um, a diversity and, yeah. and inclusion team. Can you talk a little bit about what that relationship looks like? Yeah, we have a wonderful uh, diversity and inclusion team. We have a, a chief diversity officer who's been driving amazing programs for quite some time at J&J, &J, and, and she has an awesome team behind her. There's a number of initiatives that, they're, that they've been leading across the whole 130,000 employees, like you mentioned initially. Um, and what I would say our allies program is like a partnership with our diversity and inclusion team. Um, you know, we kind of started out as an experiment because I would say we have a bit of an unconventional approach for J&J, &J, where it's a lot more straight talk, um, a lot more um, maybe, maybe drilling down on some topics that three months ago, it wouldn't have even been plausible that we were going to have meetings like this at work, right? And, that, and that's, I think, what's been so great about the program is just the reception and the openness um, the authenticity by, and, and we've done this by partnering with a um, African, uh, African studies professor from Temple University, who's a little bit of, I'd say some of the magic in our formula because he's so awesome. He's funny, engaging, so smart, um, great storyteller, and he's high energy. So it's this great balance of, um, you know, when, when you can have a professor talking about a topic like this for 90 minutes and you have no drop off on the webinar, like we maintain throughout and we get record numbers of like questions, engagement, survey fill outs afterwards, like beyond even when we were doing COVID webinars in the beginning of COVID when everybody wanted to know information, it, it speaks to his ability to be able to maintain the audience, keep them engaged and excited and then do it in a way that people really want to re receive the message that he's giving. So it, that's a bit of our um, secret formula. Seem to have like a running theme in terms of a secret formula. And, and I just pulled something out that you said before around belief and, you know, influencing others. And there's always proof points and data to back up ideas and maybe new product or new initiatives. But can you tell us just a little bit about like what it means to you when you believe in something and like how you get people to rally behind you? Are, are there certain things that you do personally to get you ramped up and super passionate or, 
or do you use like data to back that up or is it just something that's more innate and then you find the right people that share that passion with you? I mean, how, how do you go about, about building that belief? Because you've done it, you, you've had to have do, done it to launch these new programs and also a lot of the new product that you brought to market. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's about head and heart. You have to start with the head a little bit with, um, you know, the things that, the things that are going to catch on, at least in a culture like J and J have to be grounded in like science facts data. Right. I mean, you're, you're not going to be successful in convincing people to join a movement of something that doesn't make any business sense. Right. I mean, that's like first and foremost. So you have to have your, you have to have that, that narrative that's, that's backed by data. But then the way that you, it's kind of like the sizzle and the steak, right? Like you've got your steak because the, the thing that you're proposing and that you're trying to get people on board with makes all the business sense in the world. The sizzle of that is, is the heart. Like what, what is it about this that makes you care about it so much personally? And, and it can't be made up. You have to, I think it's like this, this heart that's authentic right? And that you can tie that into why it's good for the company. So, you know, if I think about this ascent, the essential health model, you know, one of the, one of the key points on that was about that, that this, this, this business, because one of the challenges when you take resources off of something, anyone who's left on it is like, oh, all the action's happening on the other thing. I don't want to be on this thing. This is bad for my career. Like everyone starts panicking, right? And, and so one of the big management challenges or change tasks on that is, how do you make people feel excited about working on this? I mean, this is a great place to be. And, and we can have all the stats and data, but if you don't feel like it's going to benefit you, you're not going to learn something, why stay, right? And so the, the, the hard part of that was about, actually very literally on heart, it was about these brands are the heart and soul of this company. You know, they've been around for a hundred years and it's our job, it's our, it's our responsibility to set this up for a hundred more, you know, come join us to set, to, to chart the foundation of the new way of doing this, right? On the other businesses, which are awesome, you're going to get other kinds of experiences, but it's not the new way of doing it, right? It's more innovation, more of that stuff. If you want to, if you want to pivot into this wing it, this is the place to be because of the heart and soul of this company, right? So there's like that kind of a story going on and how, you know, if we were going to, if we are really going to have, and I'm going to use the word sustainable in a different way, a sustainable business, we have to get, we have to make major shifts or shifts in the way we operate in order to make sure we're taking that into account. You know, we needed to make some pivots. So you can have all that logical stuff, but, but it's the combination of that with the idea that we get up every day to make this, make people's lives healthier. That's why we exist. We're Johnson and Johnson Consumer Health. We touch 1 billion people every single day to make them healthier, to empower them with their health. Healthy people can't thrive without a healthy planet. It goes hand in hand, right? For the health of people, we have to care about the health of the planet, whether that's with you know, our, our view on plastics and, and plastics in the environment and our responsible use of plastics or carbon emissions and how carbon emissions linked to um, global warming, which linked to climate change, which cause a human, one of the biggest human health risks on the planet. So it's kind of like all of those messages and enrolling people and wanting and giving them a way to participate and be part of the change. 
So um, it's a little bit like that. So it's definitely like head and heart. I wonder like, and tell me if you've heard this before, this is me being me. So I fully get that I'm doing a me right now, but like we spent all this time on CX, like where's the time on EX? Like where's the time on the employee experience? Mm -hmm. Like, because what you just said on like, how do you inspire people and getting there before they even think it and say, Hey, like this place is about heart and head. It's about keeping you healthy in both arenas. And if you work on this business it allows us to do X, Y, and Z because of it. So one, I want to know, like, can I, should I brand that? Should we brand that? Is like, have you heard it yet? CX and EX? Well, CX is customer experience. But yeah, EX I've never heard it in that way. I think you should totally yes. run out and file a trademark. All right. Let's, we're going to hold up on this show, Ryan, before we, Ryan, this is so Ryan's like, here we go again. All right. So let's get back to, uh, you've already started to touch on this, but like you guys had a massive announcement this week Yeah. on the sustainability side. Can you share it with us? Yes. This is uh you know, it's one of those the things that, it, you know, we've been, it's the culmination of a lot of, a lot of work. And I didn't think that I would be sitting in my basement in exercise shorts, <laughs> you know, doing the, doing the announcement, right? I, I had envisioned it would be much more people around and there would be some kind of a employee event. But anyway, um, such as the times that we're living in now, but the announcement is, about our, our Johnson & Johnson Consumer Health Healthy Life's framework, or mission, which is, is about our unique point of view on sustainability, encompassing our, our products, our operations, and partnerships that, that we're going to forge that have a broader societal impact all by 2030. And our commitment to that is an $800 million investment um, over 10 years. So the and the reason that i that we all felt so passionate about doing this externally because we've been we've had a lot of these things in place internally and we've been building this over the last year um is that it shows our seriousness um to this space right for our employees as well as for our other key stakeholders like our customers like our suppliers we really wanted to make sure that you know, we're, we're, we're putting our money where our mouth is, right? This is an important part of our business and we're serious about the health of people and the health of the planet. And so making this announcement um, was, was meant to reinforce that to all, all of our stakeholders. First of all, wow. I mean, that's all. So 800 million over the next decade. Mm -hmm. And when, when you're trying to keep this information kind of tight lipped and I mean, there's so many brands in, inside of, the arsenal and some of them aren't exactly like in New Jersey where the headquarters. So like when you go and tell another part of the brand, brand, like how, how have they responded to this? Well, we've had, um, as part of our strategy, we've had, we've declared eight leadership brands and those are um, Neutrogena, Avino, Listerine, um, OGX, uh, Le Petit Marcier, which is a brand in France. Um, as, Gosh, I'm missing something. Stay free. Johnson's baby. I think that's eight. Um, those are the brands that are really what we would call like at the tip of the sphere. So they're bringing the sustainability work through the brand strategy already. And, and, you know, everything they do is kind of filtered through that lens. So those teams were instrumental in, um, helping us kind of figure out all the different aspects across our business that needed to be true in order to live into, um, this is a new way of working. So those brands have been excited from the beginning, you know, 
happy to lead the transformation and the change. Um, and so I, you know, overall, I think the reception has been really positive about, about the news. You know, it, it, and if you haven't been as involved in the details, there's definitely a bit of, and some of the feedback I've heard today was, have been more like, um, oh, wow, are we sure we can do that? You know, and it's like, yes, I'm sure we can do that. Definitely. So there's still a bit of um, connecting dots. I think, you know, we have a lot of people, there's 20,000 people in consumer health. We didn't personally call all 20,000 of them. So there's a bit of um, you know, change <laughs> rolling through the organization right now, but that it's having its intended impact, right? That was the, that was the point of making the announcement. There's all this focus on purpose. It's like the new buzzword in business, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, in your digital background, you have your credo. And I was just popped on the J&J website in, in 1886, you know, talks about forming a credo-minded company. Mm-hmm. And the founders, brothers James and Edward, you know, had, had a vision, right? And eight of his uh, first... 14 employees were women and set the tone for people first values in a company. And I'm just curious, like, you know, it seems like that is such first were were they the first purpose-based company? Were you the first purpose-based brand? (laughs) And, and second, like, how much do you talk about that internally? I mean, is that a continually continual filter for everything that you do in the business? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Are we the first purpose-based company question? It's a really interesting one. I don't know. So when I came in and started working at J&J, you know, you had some kind of awareness of the credo, you know, you go through credo training like day one. And having worked here a long time, I, I can't emphasize enough like how meaningful the credo is and how ever present it is in every conversation, maybe not every single conversation, but it's always in the back of your mind. And it's always looked at as, as really a framework for decision-making and prioritization. And it's got purpose at its core. Um, I think, I feel like it's what really differentiates us from a lot of other companies. Um, and it, it's some ways like a code of ethics of, you know, what we hold ourselves accountable to. Um, I mean, I feel, honestly, I feel really proud of it. And something cool about our credo is, it just had its 75th anniversary last year and it got modernized. It's only been modernized, I don't remember, two or three other times. And so there's a, some new language in there about inclusivity um, that hints them a little bit more to sustainability because it, you know, over time, cultural norms change, dynamics change. So it, it's a living document. It needs to stay current so that it can be relevant to the employees today. It's a pretty cool thing. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground here, and and every once in a while we'll 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 try to find a guest who's gonna jive with our silliness. And so one of the things we like to do is we have these these business haikus. All right, first one: a good boss protects, a gross boss promotes himself, a great boss praises. What was the first boss doing? A good boss protects. Okay. A gross boss promotes himself, a great boss praises. God, are you guys going to have like, you're going to make plaques or mugs with these things? You do a, a Courage, uh, Courage, Courage Web e-store. There's and uh, here. <laughs> we, I, I'm liking where this is going. Yeah. You can sell these things or can memes you, at least, a meme generator. Can you pick a, can you open up 10% of your time to help us do this? Oh, I, I would like nothing more. <laughs> 
All right, this one's kind of a layup, but because you're you came out of marketing, so uh, don't care, they won't share. No emotion, no motion. No feel, then no deal. I like it. Okay, this one I'm I'm really curious if you're gonna like this one or not, or if you agree with this one. What must die today for something new to bloom forth? Bang bang status quo. Ooh, a little rebel streak in that one. A little violent for my taste, but <laughs> yeah, well, it had me until you said bang bang. Well, let's uh, but let's talk about this from a J and J sense because we've made it. You've already, I think you've made it clear that there are essential brands that you need. I'm not saying they're playing status quo in any way, mm-hmm. right? But like, they're the heart of of J and J. So, do you feel like there are places where status quo should play for the purposes of other brands to experiment? God. You're just look at you with the hard questions today. Yeah, I do feel that way, actually, because there are some, um, not everything is worthy of changing, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's where priorities come in. And there's definitely parts of the business where we shouldn't try to reinvent them. We should just let them be and put our effort into the ones that we really should spend the time to reinvent. And I see this playing out across markets where, you know, where, where maybe you have choices where it's like, we really should just leave that brand alone, but there's somebody that's got a passion for it. Right. And it distracts resources from some things that could be bigger opportunities. So yeah, I do. I do think that um, some things we should let be and so, in order to direct ourselves through the things that really need, need the investment in the, of time and energy. So sitting at the helm, how many people report into you, Katie? Um, 45. 45. Okay. So that's, that's big responsibility of, of people's career global, and global team. I have a, it, I have the global franchise responsibility. So lots of responsibility. And I'm just curious, you know, for, we've, we've talked to many leaders and, you know, obviously this is a, podcast about courage and a a lot of people look to leaders to be courageous and I'm just wondering like you know part of being courageous in in what we've found is there's some aspect of vulnerability in that and curious just in the 19 years and your you know 20 plus year career as you've looked at leaders and, and become a leader of brands and a leader of people yourself, is there something that's been extremely hard for you in becoming a leader, being a leader, something that you struggle with? Well, I'll give my, can I give, I'll give my most recent example. Um, and maybe some, some people have had, had this experience. Um, when I started this current role, I, I was in the right place. I will say I was in the right place at the right time, right? I mean, um, where I ended up getting this opportunity faster than I think I would have um, had I not been in the prior role that I was in, right? So I got this great opportunity to step up quicker than I, you know, quickly. And that put me on the leadership team of the whole consumer sector. And I wrestled with 
what I would call imposter syndrome um, for like the first three to four months of the job where, you know, it's that feeling of like, when are they going to realize that it wasn't really supposed to be me that they picked when I felt like I'm like, I'm going to uh, work in someone else's seat. They haven't figured out that it wasn't supposed to be me or wow. There were other people they should have picked. I don't know why they selected. So I was fighting in myself, even though I knew that I had the, I had the, the vision for what we needed to do. And I thought I could do it at the same time. It's like right shoulder, left shoulder, right? On the one hand, it's like, I got this. I can do this. On the other hand, it's like, oh, I don't know. God, do they realize that, you know, maybe you weren't a VP long enough before you came to this job and everybody else is VP a lot longer. And, you know, uh, you, you haven't had this kind of experience, you know, a little bit of that. So it was a little bit of like not promoting myself really in my head. Um, and so it, it took me a while. And so I, I went on this thing where I felt like I had to keep putting points on the board, which through my own, through my own like doing to prove to myself that like that they made a good decision. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, and so it took a while, I think, to accept that, hey, it's good. You're fine. This is what it, this is what was meant to be. And so as a, after that happened, I've recognized that same philosophy, that same thing in other people when they get new jobs and you see that they feel like it's a little bit overwhelming. So it's been, I, I think it's a, a thing that a lot of people wrestle with, but no one talks about it. Right. And so once you can, once you recognize it and you can see it in somebody else, it's a really refreshing conversation to have to be like, Hey, you got this. It's in your head. Promote yourself. Everybody, everybody's excited about you being in this new role. Right. So I think that's a bit of a, a leadership lesson. It's, it's funny how many times we hear that. Um, and it's that self-critic, yeah. that self-doubt that, that bleeds in. And, and it's, it's amazing. You, you can see some of the best people in terms of leadership all dealing with the same thing. So thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's really powerful for a lot of people who are, you know, younger in their career and growing and, and just knowing that you don't always have to have all the answers. And, no, you know, not. like stay humble. Exactly. Well, and, and the other thing too, that is a big lesson from the imposter syndrome learning is that you always assume if you're feeling that way, you assume you're the only one in the room that doesn't understand what's going on. And the more experience you get, the more that you realize, Hey, guess what? No one understands what this is about. <laughs> it's not, it's not just me. And then you can, you can, you can use that feeling to be the one that brings up the obvious stuff that no one wants to say, like, Hey, I'm a little confused. I don't understand why we would do this or what's going on here. Does anybody else understand? And then people start admitting like, yeah, I'm kind of lost. And you realize that, that you're not alone and that those things you were feeling are actually like, you're feeling that because maybe it's actually, maybe actually no one really gets it. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think this is just for young people. I think it's for everybody. Yeah. Right? Like I have a, had a hard time saying the, these, you know, saying, I don't know. Or I don't get it. I don't explain know. it to me like I'm five. Like I say that a lot. I don't really understand what you're talking about. Or can you explain it like you were trying to explain it to your mom? Like what is that? What is this about? Well, look, uh, I wish we had more time because this is what it's all about. I appreciate you coming on and being vulnerable with us, sharing your big news. It's, it's just awesome to hear. Sorry that you're in your 
basement or wherever you are versus out with a you know the team oh you guys it was fun thank you for having having me on your uh on your podcast and um we're gonna call you back about doing the creative uh courage plaques and uh, oh yes and getting in the credo there's a big gave, business there i would say huge business yeah the, the head and heart says there's a huge head business. and heart yeah katie thanks so much take care thank you Next week on the Courageous Podcast, we're joined by a real superhero, Ricky Mena. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us five stars, subscribe, and leave us a comment.